0: If you brought a copy of scripture with you, you can find the book of Ezra. You might want to start with the table of contents, but you'll get there, I'm sure. As we begin a brand new series, series God help us. Can you relate to that statement right there? But let's just start with the movies, shall we? I'm not going to show any, but are you a movie? Everybody, anybody here a movie goer? Just raise your hand if you're a movie goer. You like movies? All right, what kind of movies do you like? Like thrillers, drama, you like romance? <laughs> or like my wife says that you like shoot 'em up movies. I don't like those. <laughs> Here's my real question. Do you have to have a bow on the on the end of every movie you watch? Nice little ending. Good guys end up good, bad guys get killed and all that stuff. Lovers come together. My wife hates it when the credits go up and they, they haven't even gotten married. It's like, what happened to them? I said, honey, they're, they're fine. <laughs> I have a movie in mind, which will go unnamed. The actors are powerful and the plot line just pulls you in the hook of the movie right from the very beginning. I mean, it's just a wow movie to me, except the ending is so frustrating. There's no real ending in fact, it's, uh, it's uh, not the one I expect anyway. Not that I want to be able to predict the ending, but it just, I mean, I mean, I mean even the bad guy is still alive. And I got thinking about this, and I thought, you know, the re- that's really reality, isn't it? That's kind of life, isn't it? Life isn't always fair, amen? And our happy endings are sort of fleeting, uh, they come and they sometimes go just as quickly. Do they not? And then there's, that, there's all that awful waiting in between while you're waiting for God to intervene, to do something. Some of you are doing that right now. You're, you're in that valley and you're just waiting. And it's so difficult. Movies can be so misleading. The Jews actually understood this feeling. They'd been to the proverbial mountaintop, only to return to the valley again and again, both in biblical and extra biblical history. But it just reminds me that the Bible is a book of reality. It's a reality book. It does have the greatest ending, does it not? We all agree to that. But until then, there's a lot of ups and downs, a lot of mountaintops, a lot of valleys, and a lot of anticlimactic endings. Not a lot of bows. Like, like take, for instance, uh, uh, the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're one book. It's just one book in the Hebrew. Uh, I mean, you talk about anticlimactic. I mean, if you, if you go through Nehemiah, and I preached through it years ago in another building campaign, everybody preaches through Nehemiah when they do a building campaign. And, uh, you know, just, we're at the very, at the end, you know, the wall's been built in record time, 50-some days. And, you know, the enemy said, if a fox jumps on that wall, it'll tumble. In there. And instead, fox, we'll put two choirs up there. Remember that? In chapter 12, you've got a choir coming from this side. you got another choir coming from this side. They converge in the middle. They're singing to the glory of God. And the Bible tells us the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Amen? Bring up the credits. Except there's a 13th chapter where Nehemiah had gone away and comes back only to find out that his enemy, he's got an apartment he's renting out in the temple and they're not obeying the Sabbath and he's got to implement all these things. Just what an anticlimactic ending. But that's sort of how life is, isn't it? God had raised up enemies to deal with his disobedient children. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, being one of them, the great king Nebuchadnezzar, through a series of invasions beginning about 608 or 9 and all the way through 586. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, destroyed it, destroyed the temple completely, and carried away all of those temple precious treasures, vessels. Along with a lot of key people, this would have been the time of Daniel, uh, when Daniel was a captive in Babylon. It was, you know, Daniel was the man at that time. He was God's man on the scene, and he'd seen it all. He'd experienced Nebuchadnezzar, the miracles, the, the you know those prophecies that came to pass, and then his grandson Belshazzar. He was the one, remember, who. Uh, who was having that drunken orgy in Daniel chapter five and God's finger appears on the plaster, mini, mini, tekel you, farce, and you're finished. And that night, in fact, he uses that, that very night, it says it in Hebrew, that very night, Belshazzar is killed. The kingdom is overtaken by the new kingdom, Medo-Persia and King Cyrus. So all that takes place before this happens here in Ezra chapter one. So that's sort of setting you up. In fact, we're, by the way, what happened is really fascinating. Babylon was considered an impenetrable city. It was a wonder of the world. You couldn't get in there. The the mighty river Euphrates went right into the center under the, went under the temple wall and fed the entire uh, uh, city. And so what happened was the, the Persians came on that night, Daniel chapter five, And they actually diverted temporarily the entire river Euphrates, lowered the the, the depth, walked right into the wall, and destroyed Babylon. And according to Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, when Cyrus, the great Cyrus, King Cyrus, came uh, and took over, on the day he took over, the aged Daniel, still alive, presented to him a scroll of Isaiah, and showed in the scroll, scroll of Isaiah, written, wait for it, 150 years earlier, Cyrus's own name. Can you imagine? Well, let's just look at it. Look at Daniel or Isaiah chapter 44. Here it is. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you out, out of the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners. Who turns wise men back and makes their uh, their knowledge foolish? Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers? Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins? Who's, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Sire- By the way, a lot of think a lot of people think that's a prophecy of when the Persians lowered the level and walked underneath the. Uh, um, uh, the 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 wall. He says to Cyrus, "See it there. He is my shepherd." This is 150 years before Cyrus is even born. He's my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, "She shall be built, and the and uh, the temple, your foundation shall be laid." Pretty cool, huh? In fact, within a year—that's where we're at in Ezra chapter one, five thirty-nine BC. Within a year, Cyrus, possibly due to Daniel showing him that he is he is the prophetic fulfillment of God Himself, uh, took it as his divine responsibility to let the Jews go back and build the rebuild the temple, and it's all those ruins. In fact, there's even a cylinder that it's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It was found in the late 1880s, and it's a, it's a fascinating piece of Egyptian cuneiform. But it, the the bottom line is this cylinder describes his exploits, including his allowance to uh, send them the Jews back to Israel. Not by the way, not Egyptian cuneiform. This would have been Persian. But again, this describes this describes what he did. So because of that. To this day, Cyrus, who was not a Jew, and we don't even know if most think most think he didn't even become a follower of God. He just sort of was inspired, and I don't know. We don't. That's for our purposes. It doesn't matter. But uh, the fact is that Cyrus did release the Jews after seventy years to go back to rebuild the temple, and so Jews to this day revere the memory of Cyrus they don't just revere the memory of Cyrus, they revere the memory of President Harry Truman. Remember him? The buck stops here, Harry. So if you know anything about recent history, in the last century, one of the most astonishing things that no one thought would ever happen was the establishment of the Jew in the state of Israel and the rebirth of Israel in 1948. In 1948, when when Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel signed their declaration of independence they were now a nation with Muslim nations all around them threatening to push them into the sea. 11 minutes after Ben-Gurion signed that declaration, President Truman signed his agreement and said, this is a nation. And that's why they revere him. In fact, just a couple of years later, Truman was, at a Jew, was invited to, by his other Jewish friend to a ceremony at a Jewish seminary in New York. And uh, while he was there, his uh, friend introduced him to the Jewish audience as, as the man, and I, I quote, as the man who helped create the state of Israel. Truman responded, he said, helped create the state of Israel? He said, I am Cyrus, That's quite a bold statement, wouldn't you agree? He said, I am Cyrus. We were gonna put it up there, but I guess we're not. So anyway, uh, uh, at any rate, that's what he said. I am Cyrus. And what the point is that Truman understood his Bible. He saw himself as a modern day Cyrus, allowing the Jews to exist in their own country. So at any rate, This is where we meet him in Ezra chapter one. It's the, it's the, the years is 539 BC. Okay. The 70 year captivity is coming to a close and God's help for Israel would come from the unlikely source of a pagan King. It often comes from unlikely sources. Does it not? And let me just say this as our church enters the final stages of the construction and remodeling we remember God has helped us, amen? Over the past quarter of a century, God has taken this church from 300 to over 1,400. God has saved hundreds and hundreds of souls and many, just as many been baptized. We've sent out missionaries. We have started churches. We have created and expanded virtually every ministry under this roof, but all of it and only with the help of God. Without me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus said, not me. In fact, just the other day, uh, uh, Josh Daggett, our second church planner, sent all the engaged leaders this picture as they're moving into their new facility and in his new offices. I mean, Josh keeps records of everything. And so what you're looking at are pages though, are of names, individuals. Maybe some of yours are on these that we were praying over that they would be saved. And we were also praying about churches being started. This is a reflection of the beginning of our time in 2004 of every week fasting and praying for the souls of men and for the planting of churches. Without God's help, we can do nothing. So that's what the scripture says. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Amen? So Ezra, who the book is named Ezra, but we're not even gonna meet Ezra until chapter seven. It's gonna be like 80 years later, okay? But just the same, that's the book we're looking at. By name, that is. Also, our title is God Help Us. Ezra's name literally means God help helps his name was a perpetual reminder to him and to everyone around him that we need God's help we always need to be in that place where we're not feeling sated we're not totally satisfied we need God and when we get to a place where we're smug God help us ever more so so this reminds us that we still need God's help to believe, to work, to trust, to grow, to repent, and to obey. Our theme and our construction is transformed from the inside what? Inside out. If the inside of our building is not a reflection of the inside of our hearts and lives, then we are false advertisers, plain and simple. Our lives should be a transforming work from the inside out, like Paul said to the Corinthians, you are our letter, known and read by all. Have you ever read that? So with that in mind, Ezra chapter one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he might be... might. He might uh, made a proclamation, rather, throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Here's the proclamation. Thus says king Cyrus, or king Cyrus, king of Persia. I'm not sure if that's what he sounded like. I just thought I'd put a little voice inflection. The Lord, the God of heaven, has called me, given me, rather, all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house, that is the temple, at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord the God of Israel he is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods and beasts besides goodwill offerings of the house for the house of God that's in Jerusalem then rose up the heads of the fathers of the house of Judah and Benjamin. By the way, remember, this is Persia. It used to be Babylon. And, um, and it was Nebuchadnezzar who took Judah and Benjamin to uh, Babylon. Now, there would have been remnant of all 12 tribes, but that's the reason why they're focused on here. And the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and all who were with them aided them with vessels of silver and gold and uh, goods and beasts and costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away some 70 years earlier from, or 50 actually, from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out, and uh, in the charge of uh, Mithrid say that name five times fast. The treasurer who counted them out to Shez uh, Bazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them: thirty bases of gold, thousand bases of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred ten bowls of silver, a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand four hundred. All these, Shez Bazar, bring up. Did, did he bring up when the exiles? were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So, based on what you just heard historically, what God, how God worked providentially, and from this text, I wanna just focus on what happens when God wants to do a work. When God wants to do a work, he moves in the hearts of key people. He did it then, he does it now. You see it in chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit, I love that, of Cyrus, king of Persia. It was in 2005 that many of you remember the story, because I've shared it before. In 2005, we did this remodel, This we did this building, we added a little section of off to the, um, off to the north here, and, and we were rejoicing, we did it without borrowing, and now a church of 500 people, the most spiritual thing we could do is have a gymnasium, Amen? And so we took up an offering for a gymnasium. It was so pitiful, I couldn't even tell. I didn't even tell the church it was so bad. And I was so miserable that, it, that we weren't gonna get that gym. I sort of came into church on a Monday morning sort of muttering to myself, because that's what you do when you don't get your way, right? You just mutter to yourself, right? So I'm sitting down and Kevin Thomas, our counseling pastor at the time, just said in passing, well, maybe it's time we plant a church. And I wish I could tell you what went on in my heart in that moment. I mean, it was, it was very charismatic-like. I, mean, I didn't see angels or lightning bolts or anything like that, but just, what? It was like, my heart was on fire. It's like God himself had stirred my heart. I said, that is exactly what we're going to do. But what most of you don't know is, meantime, at the exact same time, up in Algona Iowa, Dave Heisterkamp, who I had mentored a few years earlier, gone up there to pastor had been praying secretly with his wife that God would open up a door for them to plant a church. He wasn't even telling me about this. And we were friends. And so they were begging God because they'd run up against all these walls of legalism and stuff. And so they were praying that way. And then on that day in that office, when Kevin Thomas said those words, I called Dave Heiserkamp and the rest is history. When God is gonna do a work He moves in the hearts of key people. Secondly, he wills in the hearts of key people. God doesn't just stir up our minds, make us emotional, give us the heebie-jeebies. He does something to move us. And look at the rest of verse one. So that, that Cyrus, he made a proclamation. His heart was stirred. He issues the proclamation, frees up the Jews. Listen, when God is in something, it doesn't just become an idea that gets kicked around. It becomes an action that gets implemented. Yeah, I'll read that again. When God is in something, it doesn't just become an idea that gets kicked around. It becomes an action that gets implemented. Warren Wiersbe said, our dreams should be blueprints for action and not escapes from reality. Just the other day I met with a man he felt that God had he told me he felt God he told me for God had was was leading him to do a certain thing and when that certain thing presented himself he didn't do it so I'm wondering was God behind this the bible tells us it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Philippians two thirteen. Have you ever read that? It's God who's working in us both to will and to do because when God does something, it's not just an idea that gets kicked around. It's an action that gets implemented. Thirdly, when God is gonna do something, wants to do a work that's his work, not mine, not yours, but God's, He leads others, listen to this, he leads others to supply resources for the journey. This is a big, big deal. When it comes to us as a church family, when it comes to individuals, when they consider planting a church and all of the what-ifs and wonderments and all of these things, Proverbs 21 and verse one says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and like the channels of water, he moves it wherever he wants to. Have you ever read that? That's pretty cool stuff. And that's what's happening here, is it not? Remember the Exodus? When, as promised, I mean, God decimates the entire country. Nothing left. I mean, if I'm an an Egyptian, I got no crops. I got no cattle. There's nothing left. I'm hoarding anything I can hold onto, right? But God promised the Jews when they went to the, the promised land that the Egyptian would cough up all kinds of stuff, gold, silver, garments, and everything. And that's exactly what happened, Right? That's what's happening here. The same thing is happening here. Did you read just from the reading? God prompt, not only does he stir up Cyrus, he stirs up the entire Persian culture. It isn't just Jews that are coughing up gold and silver. The Persians are. Everybody's pointing up. Again, the writer of Proverbs, I don't want to wrap myself in Proverbs this morning, but the writer of Proverbs says, when a man's ways please the Lord, He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. God never sends his people on a journey empty-handed. He supplies what they need when they need it. My God shall supply what? All my need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Again, God never sends his, will never send you, let's make it personal. He'll never send you on a journey empty-handed. He will supply what you need and when you and when you need it. and you can be confident of that. This text teaches us. and we should have learned this from the great missionary himself, Hudson Taylor. His, his answers to prayer are just so worth reading and rereading. they're so encouraging extra biblical, but so encouraging. He famously said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. So take that to the bank, seriously. Cyrus, verse six, even brought out the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen 50 years earlier. So they, they even had everything they needed to rebuild the temple and get it going again. And here's the point. If God has called you Stop worrying about the supplies. Did you hear that, John Nemmers? If God has called you, don't worry about the supplies. That's the only time service I'm gonna say that because you're the only one you're gonna be in there. So. <laughs> He'll lead others to supply. And you can count on that because that's how God does things. And I praise God for the suppliers that he raises up in our church to make things happen, Amen. Many, are you, many of you were a part of that. Here, number four. When God wants to do a work, and this is really huge, he moves the right people to make the right move. In chapter two, in verses three through 67, and you'll thank me for not reading it, there's a list of families. And when you, when you crunch all the numbers, it comes to about 50,000, 42,000. You got servants and singers and all of this. There's about 50,000 of them who returned to Jerusalem. The Old Testament scholar, Walt Kaiser, has did his investigation on this. And he estimated that 50,000 left Persia, went to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, 50,000. That's one out of every six. In other words, five out of every six Jews stayed in Persia. What would you have done? What would you have done? I have an opportunity to leave and go back to Jerusalem. Would you do it? Or would you stay? I mean... History has told you, you plop a Jew down anywhere and they thrive, right? Wherever they're at. 50 years. It's been 50 years since the fall of Jerusalem. Most of these people that were going had been born in Babylon. In fact, Zerubbabel, chapter two, verse two, you see his name? Zerubbabel. His name literally means planted in Babylon. He was born in Babylon. It's the only thing ever knew the only thing you would ever known. And sadly, that's the basis by which some of you will stay here because, man, I don't know anything about that part over there. I'm not going. Are you kidding me? We don't stay or go based upon conveniences. Or we shouldn't, anyway. Many of us do. I remember when a country church that was full of farmers a couple dozen of them, asked me to be their pastor. And I really struggled with it. I was so excited about the potential of being a pastor, but so worried. I didn't know, I didn't know beans about farming, no, no pun intended. And uh, so I was pleading with God as to what I should do. And in my normal course of Bible reading, I came to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse eight, which says, Abraham went out, not knowing where he was going. And I knew right there and then God was telling me to go. And I did go. But I had to do it against all of my personal proclivities, which which is what we do when God is moving us. Moving for God should never be based on what you know, but who you know. I mean, it was years earlier that Jeremiah the prophet alluded to here early on. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 told the Jews when they got deported to Babylon, get used to living there. It's going to be a while. He said, build houses, get married, have kids, make money, thrive. And thrive they did. For the most part, and so much so, most of them, five out of six decided, I'm not going back. By the way, before you criticize them for not going back, consider this, the Bible doesn't. The Bible does not criticize them for not going. Why do I say that? Because the issue isn't to guilt people into going or not. It's to know whether God is leading you, amen? As for me being on the way, the Lord led me. That should be our calling card. David, when he was running from Saul, you, this is recorded in 1 Samuel 30, and he was out warring, and the Malachites came in and kidnapped all the wives and the children. You remember that story? And took them away. And they're wailing, they're gonna kill David. Instead, David got a plan together, took the 600 and went after him. And they're going through valleys and hills and all these things, it's exhausting. And they're so exhausted, 200 of the 400 say, we can't go any further, we're exhausted. So David says, well, he, you stay with the stuff and the rest of us will go after him. They do, they go after him. They capture the Amalekites. They kill them off. They get every wife and every kid back. It's happy days again. They're back to the mountaintop. They come back to the 200 and the 400 that went with David said, we're not giving them anything. They didn't go with us. And David's, I oh, no. They're gonna get just as much spoil as you because they, quote, stayed with the stuff. I think when it comes to the choice of going or staying, when it comes to being a missionary or a pastor, helping out in a church plant, and determining whether you're being led by God or not, it involves just a couple of things, your motive and your ability. Are you being motivated by God? And what are those motives? And do you have the ability? It's pretty simple beyond that. Not long ago, I was looking for someone, to, we were looking for someone to fill a position. I interviewed a, a man that I thought was perfect fit for the position. I mean, just, he had the character, he had the charisma, he just was the guy. I thought he is the guy. And I mean, he, we just had this, we were just in sync with each other and I was all but certain he would say, yes, let's take this to the next level. And I called him back and I said, what do you think? He said, He said, Pat, I can't wait. I wouldn't, I'd love to come to Sailorville. This would be such an awesome opportunity, but we're not gonna go. I said, well, why? He said, well, because we would have to leave family. We have family living in this area. So I said, because I'm such an encourager, bad answer. Jesus said, he who would come after me and hate not father, mother, wife, children, his own life also cannot be my disciple. Have you read that? Sure you have. And we're on the cusp of planting a new church out of this church. Hallelujah, Eden Church, amen? Amen. We got 70 some people, praise the Lord. We bless the Lord for you. You will be missed. We will be smarting, but God will be glorified, Amen. amen? And meanwhile, Those of us who stay with the stuff, remember the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest right here at home, or at least should. That's why we have to continue to be a beacon of light for evangelizing, for growing, for serving, for helping, as God helps us. And so, these Jews after a wait that must have seemed like a lifetime, and in fact was a lifetime for most of them, they were going home. They were going to the mountaintop, but the valley was right on the other side. God, help us believe that while we're waiting, You're working. Some of you have been waiting a long time. In some cases, almost an entire lifetime. And your heart's desire is best you know how before God is still in the wait and you're still in the valley. Just know, and Job tells us this. I, you know, I look You know, I went, I look forward, can't see you. I look backward, I can't perceive you. On the right, when you're working, I can't see you. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. And so know this, while we are waiting, God is still working. Secondly, while we are following your lead, We're confident you're leading our suppliers. Believe that. The text, other text, and experience itself says, trust the Lord for the suppliers. And finally, while we sing to you on the mountain, because that's what you do when you're on the mountain, right? Yes, happy days. While we sing to you on the mountain, we'll cling to you in the valley. And the last I checked, I learned the most, not when I'm on the mountain, but when I'm down there and so do you. So thank God for your valley. Learn from God in this valley, in this weight, whatever it may be, and trust him because he doesn't mess up. Amen. You know, there is one thing you don't have to wait for. You don't have to wait for Jesus to save you. If you recognize you're like, like these disobedient Jews, you've been a rebel, you've never acknowledged your sin. My favorite line, and I, I wish I had it exactly as he put my favorite line last Easter was Luke Hardy's line when he says, and I understood I was a sinner because that's what I was. <laughs> I, I thought to myself, so many of us will just give lip service to that, but it's almost like he had this, Aha moment, which is what you need if you want to have your sins forgiven. And if you'll recognize that like Luke did, you believe that Christ died and rose again for you, you don't have to wait. The waiting is over. Salvation is there. Forgiveness is there. And you'll become a child of God. Amen. Trust Jesus. And in the meantime, let's wait while we're in our valleys. The mountaintop's coming when we never have to descend again. Our Father, that's our prayer. We gr- we're grateful to you. We thank you for this opening message and uh, introduction to Ezra. And Lord, we look forward to what we're going to learn. And I pray we've learned something today. You are the providential God. You, you're the God of history. You had all of these things figured out, even naming a king, a pagan king, 150 years before he was ever born. These are the things that should inspire us and remind us. When we can't see you in the valley, you're there and you're working. May we trust you to that end, each and every one of us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Let's all stand.